0: Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com.
1: Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, at the end of the reading, I will conclude by saying, "This is the word of the Lord," and then we invite you to respond together, "Thanks be to God." Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Samuel 15. And Samuel said to Saul, "The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek's did to Israel." and opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek, and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Am- Amalekites, alive, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, And of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, it would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me, and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on, and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, "'Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord.' And Samuel said, "'What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen that I hear?' Saul said, "'They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction.' Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned yet. Honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. This is the word of the Lord Kingdom kids are dismissed to their classrooms.
0: Well, good morning, church. My name is Rob. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I get the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at the King's Church. And turns out, if you talk enough about truth, goodness, and beauty being found in the Scriptures, eventually you'll get a passage like this to which they will say, prove it. And uh, we didn't even get to, like, one of the craziest things at the end, but don't worry, we'll get there where the prophet hacks a guy to pieces. So, hey, buckle up. This is what we're here for, welcome to the King's Church. I think though, to kind of frame out what we're doing today, it's helpful by way of illustration. Uh, I don't know how many of you here like to do jigsaw puzzles. If that is a thrill for you, God bless you for that. I just can't do it. I can't do it, my wife loves it. Um, I just, I like to come in right at the end when there's like 15 pieces left and swoop in as the hero. that's what I do. And anyway, I think what will be helpful is today the gospel, the the biblical story is a completed puzzle. It's the picture that we see at the end product. And as the Bible is giving us these narratives, as we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we're placing pieces into the framework of what's being communicated to us. And so, when you get to some dark sections, like in a jigsaw puzzle, you're like, I don't really know how this is going to fit in. I just know these pieces go together. But the more that we grow in our ability to increase in what we call our gospel fluency, and then we are able to grow in our biblical literacy, the pieces come together and we get this completed picture of the gospel. So, that's how we're going to frame today as we move through some difficult things that we read. So let me just go ahead and hit you with my main idea, and then we'll pray. So where we're going to land today is God is faithful to his promises even when we are unfaithful to his commands. God is faithful to his promises even when we are unfaithful to his commands. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, have mercy on us, for we are sinners. But God, the story doesn't end there. The story of the gospel is that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for sinners, to rescue us. And so, God, may that story be illuminated today through the preaching of your word, through the singing of your word, through all that we do. May it highlight the sacrifice and resurrection and power of your son Jesus. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Okay, so I have three points, and it's kind of going to hit some of these problematic sections. And so I want to start with kind of general misconceptions and corrections as we move through the passage. So point one is a sinful people, and there's a misconception in this section that people can point out that God is a moral monster, and the correction that we're going to see is that God is actually a just judge. So in this section, as as we heard read, thank you, brother, for reading. Um, We see and tend to gloss over kind of the beginning first two verses as the verse three kind of draws naturally our attention. But I want us to sit in this discomfort for a moment and ask the question, did God through his prophet really say what he just said? And the answer is yes. Yes, he did. But the next right question to ask is why? Why? Why would God require the complete destruction of a nation? Now, being products of the 21st century, many conclude this to be an example of the God of the Old Testament, this wrathful, vengeful God who is a moral monster, and conclude either one or two ways. One, that we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament and just move on to the New Testament, where we get a kind, generous God. Or, two, make excuses for God's actions. And I'm going to say that both of these options are actually incorrect and wrong, and actually reveal this larger deficiency that I talked about a few moments ago in the American church, which is biblical illiteracy. We don't know how to read the Bible to understand it rightly in the larger story, what we call the meta narrative of Scripture. This is why we offer classes here at the King's Church. I know this is a shameless plug since I'm the guy who leads these classes, but that's the whole intent that we grow in our ability to work through passages of Scripture, to slow down, to see how difficult pieces fit together in this big story. Highly encourage those. to Take those as your schedule allows. But in all seriousness, we want to help equip, even now on Sundays through the proclamation of the Word, to help you guys grow in this understanding of the gospel and how the story fits together so that you can be properly equipped to handle the word of God, not just personally, but also with others that you will encounter who oftentimes bring up objections to the faith, citing examples like we read today. So with that being said, let's zoom in on verse two. We read, "'Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way that when they came up out of Egypt.'" Now, here what the author is doing, he's providing a hyperlink, somewhere that we can anchor ourselves to understand the proper context for what's being able to get ready to be told to us. And so when we read these texts and see references, we should pause and then go back to those sections to get acquainted with what's being said. You see, for the Israelites, this was by way of reminder for them because they were prone to forget. For us, it's by way to make sure that we're knowing this biblical story. So we want to be good Bible readers, so let's work hard at that. And this passage is actually, the hyperlink would take us to Exodus 17. So God's people were just delivered out of slavery in Egypt. They cross through the Red Sea on dry ground, and they come into the Promised Land. They're right on the edge, coming back. And the Amalekites come, and they fight with Israel, Just immediately. Just come in and get after him. And so the battle ensues. And what's really cool is that as the battle's going on, as long as Moses has his hands in the air, Israel prevails. But the battle goes on all day. I don't know about you. I can't hold my hands up for that long. That's why I wave them around during the sermon. And so what happens is two brothers come and they bring a rock for Moses to sit on and then they prop up his arms so that Israel can prevail and the Lord brings about salvation of his people through that time and Israel wins. And then Moses writes for us in Exodus 17. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord, and the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now we've Evidently, this event was a pretty big deal because Moses wrote about it again in the book of Deuteronomy, in which we see in chapter 25, he writes, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you, for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, and you shall not forget. Now, verse 18 of, this, of that passage contains this phrase, cut off your tail those who are lagging behind you. Now, as Israel was marching, the warriors would be in the front, and in the back were the women and children. And so what he's saying is, What the Amalekites did to you in seeking after the most vulnerable, that is the same judgment that will be on them. So that's the biblical context for this judgment. However, I'm not so naive to think that that removes all sense of alarm from a passage like this. And if you're sitting here and feel that, I'm with you. This is still difficult. But in the Lord's kindness, as I prayed through this text this week and studied I figured out there's some reasons behind my discomfort, and I would imagine yours as well, that I couldn't put a finger on, so I will quote a guy who helped put a finger on that. His name is Tim Chester. Here's what he writes in his commentary. To modern ears, this sounds alarming, like ethnic cleansing, but this is ethical cleansing rather than ethnic cleansing. This is an act of judgment against sin. Destruction will come to the Amalekites, not because they are Amalekites, but because they are sinners. In a sense, this should alarm us, not because it is unfair, but because it is fair. And because while we are not Amalekites, we are sinners. Their destruction is a picture of what humanity deserves and faces from God. When judgment comes, nothing, nothing is left. If God is holy and just, sin must be punished. And that's what God is calling Saul to do, to put sin to death Because they have been judged as sinners. Now we'll get more into that proclamation in a minute, so hold tight. You see, God is holy and just, but at the same time, He has more facets than what we can just give up on a 2D view. We need to see all three dimensions of God. Moses also would write about the same holy and just God in Exodus 34, that the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, "'The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation.'" You see, what's lost on us here is the reality that the time difference between the events in Exodus and right now in 1 Samuel, 300 years. To us, it seems like a short distance, but friends, 300 years for this nation to repent, and yet they harden their hearts. God is not a moral monster, but he is just and offers a way of salvation for those who follow him. You see, we have to understand there is no neutral ground before the throne of God. We are either for him or we're against him. And the beauty is that this holy and just God offers mercy and grace if we repent and trust in him. He tarries for a season but we must not presume on his patience. This king extends the offer for us to switch sides in the midst of a battle and a war and join him as he fights for us. But let's be careful, again, to not... Set our own parameters and say, well, I got to just take care of some things first and then I'll switch. The call is to do that in the immediate, in the now, because we are never guaranteed a tomorrow. And I know we like to save a lot of sermon application for the end, but I would be remiss if I didn't go ahead and point out the obvious application here today, that sin is serious and we must deal with it seriously. Friends, we cannot tame sin. It is a wild beast that we might think we can domesticate, but when our guard is down, it will attack because that is its nature. It is shown in the story of the Amalekites here, but it also highlights when sin entered into the world and death came about and we see the first conflict of this brother relationship with Cain and Abel in Genesis four. God speaks and says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. You must rule over it. Or to quote the words of Puritan theologian John Owen, that we must mortify sin, that we must be killing sin or it will be killing you. Brothers and sisters, hear me. Do not toil with sin. Don't section off a small place in your heart to where you can think that you can kind of just keep sin contained in this corner, walled off as if it's a tempting jar of cookies on a shelf that when no one's watching, you can go and you can help yourself because it brings momentary delight. Friends, those are poison-laced cookies, and you are allowing that into your lives. So bring sin into the light. Confess it. Kill it. Live free from the bondage of sin. Our text moves on to a sinister king. We'll see our misconception here is that God is arbitrary and fickle, but we must correct that misconception that God is unchanging and steadfast. You see, ultimately, King Saul is the one who is the recipient of this message, and he starts off well. We didn't get to read this corporately, but I want to highlight it here, that before the judgment of Amalekites take place, that there's another people, the Kenites, that are also operating. living in the same land. And so, in 1 Samuel 15, 6, Saul, it said, uh, then Saul says to the Kenites, go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them, for you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So, the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And so, at first, we're like, hey, good job, Saul, showing showing obedience here, and God is showing steadfast love to his promise that came about to Abraham, where he said, I will bless those who bless you, and by extension, his people, and to those who curse you, I will also curse. So, in the same Exodus event, when they get into the land, two different groups of people have two different responses. One shows kindness, the Kenites, and one shows animosity and cursing of Israel, the Amalekites. Now, God's... And in return, God holds faithful to that promise. Look now at verses 7 through 9. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen. And of the fattened calves and the lambs, and all that was good, and he would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Again, surface level reading, it seems as though Saul is doing something good. He goes into the land, told to wipe out, but then the thought gets into his head hey, this is a powerful king. There's probably some benefit to us if we take him alive. We don't really know what that is. We're kind of reading between the lines there. But for some reason, Saul decides, let's keep him alive. And not only that, it's like, hey, all of these sheep, it seems kind of wasteful. These are great animals. And doesn't God deserve the best? We could offer these as burnt offerings to the Lord. And matter of fact, this is God's people. We need to be a light to the nations. And so why not give God the best? And so he decides to bring them up. And back into the camp. His response is pragmatic and also narrow-sighted. Saul missed the point because he was not satisfied with what God had given him. The prophet says, did I not appoint you? Did I not Messiah you, king over Israel? And then he tells him exactly what to do. He doesn't have to figure it out. He's not searching in the dark He has clear instruction, but Saul's eyes are set on a bigger throne. And so he acts foolishly because he is not satisfied in the blessings from the Lord. He does exactly what God's people have done for centuries. He's done exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden, that they declared something good that God said was not good. What the Israelites and judges did, that they did what was right in their own eyes. But backing up a little bit further, also what the world did before the flood and doing what's right as they see fit. All of these events led to God's judgment. For Adam and Eve, it was removal from the garden. For the world, in Noah's day, it was a flood. For Israel in the book of Judges, oppressors and captors. All of this, Saul is too blind to see it, but God is not. His rebuke comes in Verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. Now this kind of leads us into our second problematic part of our passage. We we're told that God regretted making Saul king in both verses 11, and we'll see it again at the end in verse 35. However, Samuel says in verse 19, what's right in the middle, speaking about God, and also the glory of Israel that is speaking of Yahweh, God, will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret. Now, this seems a bit odd that a God who is unchanging, immutable, and sovereign can regret or the word can also be translated as repent of something that he's done. On top of that, the text seems to give us a bit of whiplash going from God regretting to being a God who doesn't regret to regretting here at the end. So how are we to understand this? I found this quote from Dale Ralph Davids helpful. Frequently, the first step upon hearing such a text is to wax theological and to ask how God could be so grieved over something he, if he's God, must have known would happen. The next step is to introduce the term anthropomorphism or anthropopothism, Mm. the the, the attributing human feeling to God. It's difficult. In order to indicate that sometimes the Bible must use the grammar of humanity to communicate the truth about deity, that sometimes Scripture stoops to use human categories to tell the truth about a God far beyond all, all our categories. That is, that is all right, but there is a danger that we will dismiss the matter there and not go back to the text. What he is telling us, that I stumbled through, is to go back to the Scriptures, because that's where God has revealed himself there, not in systems of theological categories and boxes that we create and try to put God into, those pale in comparison to the revealed word that says, that God says, if you want to know me, here's how you do that as if we in our boxes, the finite, can fully come to understand the infinite. Now, there are certain complexities of God. Think the Trinity. And we need to be okay with the reality that to know God means to say this is who he is and still not yet fully grasp all the ins and outs of it. That's okay. That's called faith. That's encouraged. But when our theology keeps us From going that step further to holding things in tension, that's when we begin to defend an ideology versus our holy God. So we must rely on a fuller reading of the word of God to get the fuller picture of him. So in that quote I just read by Mr. Davis here, the matter there that he's speaking of is that God has not moved, but it is actually Saul who has moved. The quote continues. We so focus on the form in which the truth comes that we neglect the truth that comes. Did we really hear the parallel clause in Genesis 6-6, another hyperlink, and his heart was filled with pain, and since the intensity of divine sorrow over human sin, and not, not verse 11 of the present chapter move us beyond the problem of anthropomorphism, I'm sorry that I made Saul king because he has turned back from following me. It is a tragedy when Saul refuses to be Yahweh's disciple. It grieves Yahweh. He is not a you win some, you lose some God. Nonchalance is never listed as an attribute of the true God. Verse 11 does not intend to suggest Yahweh's fickleness of purpose, but his sorrow over sin. It does not depict Yahweh's flustered over lack of foresight, but Yahweh's grieved over lack of obedience. We need to know that the God of the Bible is no cold slab of concrete impervious to our carefully defended apostasies. I'm just going to quote people, (laughs) because that's good. That's why I put it in there. You see, where we have to land in this section right here, when we're trying to understand it, is that Saul changes his character And God changes his actions in order to be consistent with his own character. God is not changing his mind, but he does change his response. And that's uncomfortable. But what led to Saul's character change? Well, verse 24 tells us that. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord, and your words... Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Saul's insecurity led him to insurrection. Not only were his eyes too focused on what he desired, but his ears were tuned to the people rather than to God. Verse 1 made this explicitly clear of where his ears were supposed to be tuned to. It says that the Lord said to Saul through the prophet Samuel to listen, listen to the words from the Lord. Instead, Saul confesses here in verse 24 that he obeyed the people's voice. He listened and obeyed them rather than the God who sent him. Again, the same pattern shown from Adam and Eve as they listened to the voice of the snake in the garden. But that's not where the similarities stop. It's also in the response, the blame game. He's confronted by God through the prophet Samuel, and he Puts up a wall. I obeyed the command of the Lord. Look what I did. And three times in this passage, Saul either lies about what he did or shifts the blame to the people. Well, the people wanted this. And I was just like, eh, okay. Or the people wanted to do this. However, he has no idea that the same people he's blaming already told the prophet Samuel earlier in the narrative that, hey, Saul just put up a monument for himself. Seems a bit odd that someone who's blaming the works of someone else is setting up a monument for himself. Kind of sounds like he was the originator of this and wants the praise. His own disobedience and evidence is laid right there before him. And this is what sin does. It blinds and it makes us deaf to the word of the Lord. And Saul's eyes are too blinded to see his failure. His ears are too full of the approval of the people. He has abdicated the throne God called him to in a vain attempt to unseat the king of glory. His mission to deliver God's people fully from their enemies has been unsuccessful, and we are left, as the readers wondering, is there any hope going forward? Could there be a king who will actually follow the Lord? And the answer is layered. The first layer is, of course, yes, Because God is faithful to his promises, and he told that a new king was coming better than Saul, verse 28. And then from two weeks ago in chapter 13, that this new king would be a man after his own heart, not someone who is after his own will. But currently, there is unfinished business at hand. There is a promised king who will deliver, but yet the disobedience of Saul has yielded this Clear command, unfinished. And so, who's going to finish the job? And that is our sorrow-filled prophets. And our misconception here is that God is vengeful. And our correction is that God is true, good, and beautiful. Look at the words of, at the end of our passage um, and be amazed. Verse 32. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and agag came to him cheerfully agag said surely the bitterness of death is past and samuel said as your sword has made women childless so shall your mother be childless among women and samuel hacked agag to pieces before the lord in gilgal that is inspired word of the lord someone say hacked <laughs> it's there Now, this story doesn't, or this part of the story at least, doesn't make its way into a lot of children's Bibles. This is not a practice that we really see practiced uh, today in churches. Um, Moreover, you're probably wondering how truth, goodness, and beauty fit into this scene, since I said that's the correction that we should see. And I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) So let's identify our puzzle pieces, let's construct, and then see it in light of the finished product here. Now, the author has told us that the Amalekites are the enemies of God historically, and then reveals their nature of sinners designated to them in verse 18. Both must be just, sin and the sinner. They have to be judged and punished. And due to the neglect of King Saul, the prophet Samuel acts as the bringer of that judgment, which is death. It may look like God is being vengeful here, as if he's like, No, I'm going, you have to do what I say as a tired parent, will say to their kids, but God is just being true to the promises that he's already made and the reality that the wages of sin is death. Agag stood as a representative of sin and received the condemnation of the wrath of God. But this victory was not given through the Lord's anointed, through King Saul, Because of his disobedience, the Amalekites were not utterly destroyed. And as a result, sin was not ultimately done away with. In fact, we will see the outworkings of this, that there's a few hundred Amalekites that were still left. They'll appear later in 1 and 2 Samuel. But the last mention of someone coming from this tribe is a guy named Haman, who makes his way into the picture in the book of Esther. He's introduced as an Agagite. Literally, one who followed King Agag of the Amalekites. You want to know what he did? He positioned himself in a seat of power and used that power while God's people are in captivity through their sin and comes up with a plan for the king to wipe out God's people. Sin never changes and always stands in opposition to God and his people. And we see it plainly here. However, God providentially protects his people by sending Esther, giving her favor with the king, and through her relative Mordecai's pleading, encourages her to go plead to this king, one to who did not fear Yahweh, a pagan king, and ask him to provide the salvation that should have been done in our passage today. And the pagan king does this very thing. And the salvation of God's people came about by a king who did not know him. It's an amazing story, but it seems kind of temporal. This is just one people group. This is just one representation of sin. And it seems to come back over and over again. In this passage, in our own hearts, we should be left wondering, Can sin ultimately be done away with? Maybe we have a hope that in one person, in one sacrifice, that sin could be placed upon there and that this battle that we go over and over again that we can be ultimately delivered from. In the story of our Old Testament, it leaves this longing as we see the kingdom go forward and kings who fail at honoring God and bring sin into, and its consequences into the kingdom. We see priests who honor God and neglect their duties, prophets who will take bribes and speak words of false gods rather than the one true God. And this longing comes in to break this cycle. Is there not a deliverer? Is there not one who can ultimately save us? And then we get a period of silence in the Old Testament until we see a new character, a new character that will shake up all of history. His name is Jesus, a king who will reign eternally, a prophet who will declare and display the Word of God rightly, a priest who will offer a final sacrifice that will completely satisfy the wrath of God on sinners like me and like you. He will stand in our place and receive the gruesome death that's pictured here in our story, not with a sword, but with a cross. He rises from the dead three days later, showing that sin's hold on humanity is broken, and that relationship once again is offered, fellowship with God is offered to all who repent. Through adoption into the family of God, we become sons and daughters of the king, awaiting our future dwelling there where all the sad things will come untrue. And what we do now is we tell the world of that message. We fight to put sin to death because we know it has no victory over us. The victory has already been declared, and we're just waiting for our king to come get us. So let's be at work. The final picture of the puzzle reveals the beauty of the gospel as we summarize. See, beauty is seen in even the darkest and ugliest of pictures because those are just pieces of a bigger story in which God uses those dark scenes to emphasize and bolden the brightness of Jesus, our rescuer. So if that's you and you're working on that dark piece of your own puzzle, know that there is a bigger story that that fits into and the beauty of the gospel places it. Truth is found in that we have an enemy that we are incapable to ultimately defeat, but God promises he will and proved it once for all at Calvary. Goodness is found in that God, in his forbearance, that that is a kindness that leads to repentance, repentance so that we can live holy, casting off the weight of sin so cling, that clings so closely, and we can run the race that was set before us. God is faithful to his promises even when we are unfaithful to his commands and he invites us continually to come and to join him. Brothers and sisters, let us run free in Christ. Let us boldly declare and display the gospel, for there is no better story and no better hero. Let's pray. Father, God, thank you for the hard parts of Scripture. Thank you that your word raises the right questions and provides the right answers that God that we can learn in community of how the messiness of our lives that even our acts of sin will be judged in light of your grace and truth God if there are those here now to where this is news to them God may it be good news may you allow them to see that you are a savior who extends a welcome an invitation to switch sides. So God, do that now, we pray in Christ's name.
1: Amen.